Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Did you guys know that BMW and Mercedes used to make diving equipment? But eventually BMW was forced to shut down. People kept getting the bends. Have you thought about that maybe the Titanic really was a ship of dreams? And its dream was to be a submarine? I am so excited to share today's episode with you. Today we are chatting with my dude, my person, my love, my life partner, my husband, Nick. I've been wanting to have Nick on the show for a while now, and we chat about some great stuff today. Nick has a professional engineering license, backing up a degree in ocean engineering. He's been captivated by the sea and submarines from an early age, and it led him to pursue a career that included both. In today's episode, we chat about how my Midwestern husband discovered his love for the ocean and fascination with submarines. He also shares insight into what exactly an ocean engineer is, the program he took to get his degree, and what a career as an ocean engineer can look like. We also chat about where we live and the important work Nick is doing to help keep our waterways clean. It's a fun episode, and I love being able to share this conversation with you. Please enjoy. Nick Muzia, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so happy you're on the show today. Thanks. Glad to be here. So for listeners, we're recording in our home office, which is really fun. The second time I've recorded in person. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So with you, I want to start at your very, very, very beginning. You have a different story than other scientists I've interviewed. Well, everybody has a different story. How does a boy from the Midwest come to fall in love with the ocean? Honestly, I don't know where it all began, but probably where it was fostered, definitely. My parents, growing up on Lake Michigan, we always did a lot of sailing and boating, so from a you know, pretty young age, was just involved with that kind of lifestyle. And then uh, at one point when I was younger, parents got divorced. My dad ended up moving down to Florida eventually for work, so that's what got us down there. And then I got involved with fishing and um, snorkeling, and actually... My dad had got certified scuba diving when he was young in Lake Michigan. And so that's probably actually somewhere where it was like bred in the genes. um, Because in order to get certified for scuba diving your first time in the Great Lakes or a place like that, you've really got to want to get down on the bottom and see what it looks like down there. So as I grew up, did uh, a lot of snorkeling, fishing, trips to the Keys. And really from there, I think it just... It was exciting and interesting and spent time on the water and learning about fish and finding crabs and walking around looking at little clams and stuff like that as a as a kid. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you spent some time actually out in the water in Florida, but also you're fostering, you fostered your love in Lake Michigan, sailing and just kind of being, living that water lifestyle. And I know that one of your favorite movies, films, documentaries growing up was Titanic, right? But not like, not with Leo, but the actual Nat Geo documentary, Titanic. <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, when I was younger, two parents got a, it was probably directed from me somehow, but uh, a wallpaper with little boats on it. And I, my mom tells a story about I would go buy them one by one. It was just like a, a pattern of kind of old steam line, old ship cartoon kids wallpaper type things. And I would just be Titanic, 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 Titanic. And <laughs> actually probably have watched the... Nat Geo, Bob Ballard expedition from the 80s on VHS and my mom a couple of years ago, well, she a while ago now probably uh, got me that on DVD, but I probably watched that documentary more so than the uh, than the actual Hollywood film of Titanic, which has some pretty sweet underwater footage though, so I do enjoy that part of it. <laughs> Very cool. So when you were growing up, though, did you have an idea of what you wanted to become or what you want to do? I feel like every little kid's got some idea, right? Yeah, something, uh, you know, with the ocean, I was always interested in in fish and marine biology and that type of stuff. So I think, yeah, originally I wanted to be a marine biologist. Literally, I was like what I wanted to be. And then um, as I got into, you know, high school and talking about career stuff parents were like hey you're you're pretty good at math you should do engineering and I was like well okay engineers do make a little bit more money yeah that's good and then kind of a neat little spin I ended up uh you know watching a, a show on Discovery Channel where they had human-powered submarine races <laughs> and one of the schools was Florida Atlantic University and they had their ocean engineering program so I said all right engineering ocean marine biology this looks pretty cool. Let's do that. And pretty much from like whenever I saw that show, it was set. I was going to go to Florida Atlantic University for ocean engineering. And I literally applied to two colleges and that was one of them. And once I got the acceptance letter to that, I was like, that's, that's where it's going. <laughs> Wait, how old were you when you saw that video? I probably, I might not even have been in high school. I might have been like eighth grade or something like that. So you knew fairly early on that like engineering was going to be more your track and you were going to try to fit the ocean into it somehow. And then this human powered submarine race, like kind of shaped the rest of that. Um, well, I think it was a fascination with underwater stuff. So submarines, like going back to watching the Titanic documentary, I think a lot of that was just the underwater and the shipwreck and the just the fascination with like exploring the bottom of the deep ocean. Actually, I had a a book. Actually, it might be on one of these bookshelves here. It, it is on the uh, bookshelf. Where I said I wanted to go to the bottom of the Marianas Trench and do a bunch of that stuff. Because uh, when I was younger, my mom got me a book. It was actually a Bob Ballard pop-up book about <laughs> ocean exploration. So I think that's probably what stemmed the end. The only reason engineering was in there is because you need engineering uh, to do that type of stuff in the human-powered sub was engineering in the ocean and I said all right I'll you know that's what I like so let's do that engineering as it stands now just generally folded into the fact that you needed those types of skills to do that type of activity yes it's funny that pop-up book we definitely still have it because mm -hmm. I went to a luncheon two years ago now and Bob Ballard was the speaker and I couldn't get Nick to come because of whatever reasons 
And not that he didn't want to, but anyway, so I ended up getting getting Bob Ballard's signature yeah, at this well, lunch. Did I and, tell you to like bring that book to get him to sign it? Yes. So was Nick like, was like, can you bring it? Like, oh my God, it's like a... <laughs> and I didn't even get a meeting. It was like friends of ours that got to meet, meet him, got the book signed. So now Nick's pop-up book from when he was a child is signed by Bob Ballard. It would be really fun to... Yeah, let's well, Here it is, right? What's the, the date on this thing? When is it made? Printed 1992. <laughs> Fun facts. Bring it all full circle. So, you know you're going to go to FAU. You get in, you apply. What did it look like? Ocean engineering, probably the best way to describe it. And there's a lot of, there's a couple different programs for ocean engineering around the the country and the world, but it's pretty much engineering tasks in the ocean environment. So when you're doing construction, instrumentation, anything like that in the ocean, it's a pretty unique environment. So you've got to make things survivable and it's got its own set of criteria that you've got to, and different factors that you have to factor in. So we did underwater structures, which would be similar to a civil engineering course and um, pilings and stuff like that, but you're dealing with that in an ocean environment, in essence, it's several different layers of buoyant fluids or slurries. Civil engineering for listeners is traditionally what roads and bridges, that's like typical civil engineering ballywag. Yep. Okay. And then we also did uh, a lot of computer courses, which actually I found pretty neat because I think I base a lot on logic and they're extremely logical. So we did computer programming and circuits and electronics because a lot of kind of ocean engineering tasks are actually with vehicles, ROVs, submersibles, ocean instrumentation and science data collection. Mm -hmm. So we did a lot of electrical focus, which was interesting because we had some electrical engineering courses. Mm -hmm. And you'd always have the half of the class would be the, you know, what you'd probably consider stereotypical electrical engineers. And then the other half was our ocean engineers because we'd all take you know, the curriculum was pretty set, so a lot of times we would be in the classes, there would be a third ocean engineers, because we would all take it the one semester in our career or curriculum. So there'd be these uh, ocean engineers, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 of us that were, you know, kind of like surfer looking with board <laughs> shorts that were still good at math, and then you get computer engineers on the other side of the classroom. So you could, it was kind of funny, you could tell us apart always. <laughs> so we did that, and then... Uh, Naval architecture was another component of it. So we looked at uh, ship design and some programs nationally are geared more towards the naval architect side. But ours, we touched in that. I had some ship design and hull form work as part of our senior design effort. And then obviously with any engineering degree, you've got the physics and calculus and the math and differential equations and all that that goes with it too, which is if you're getting really into engineering in the ocean environment is actually pretty important. Let's chat a little bit about the math. You mentioned earlier that you're really good at it. I feel like a lot of people are like, uh, math. So what were some of the things that kind of like helped you get through it? And actually, what were some of the math classes that you had to take? Like calc is a given, right? But it was like calc one, calc two, calc three, and then what else? Yeah, so we had uh, calculus one, calculus two, calculus three, which are all kind of various forms of it. And then Differential equations and engineering math, which has these things called Fourier transforms, which I don't do much, do any anymore. So I have to learn all that. But actually, with math, I going into it in the college level, you know, it is tough. And I, you know, to be honest, I 
pretty much I've failed my calculus early on and had to get real stubborn and be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then a lot of it is just what I really think the biggest takeoff with a lot of that is, is it helps you to learn a thought process and how to logically break things down. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that I got from taking some of those long math classes. Like, I mean, you you just got to grit the room and learn the thought process. And it kind of teaches you a different way of looking at things Mm -hmm. and how to to break down equations, break down problems and look at relationships between different things. Uh, I mean, it's pretty complex stuff, but I think with anyone, if you're stubborn enough just to make it happen and grit through, and I mean, you're going to spend a lot of time working on it, but just trying to figure it out, I think, you know, anyone can, but it takes a lot of time. While we're on the topic of classes, what was the hardest class or most challenging? I mean, honestly, the math is probably the the hardest portion of it. Definitely Mm -hmm. would say that there's various aspects of calculus, just getting through the the early classes and really most of that was probably just internal me just you know, pushing through because then once I got to the higher level ones I was rolling at that point probably I had one class that I think was it was hard but in a professionally constructive way I had one teacher his name was Dr. Tennant he ended up like pretty much designing the engines to the SR-71 Blackbird before anyone in America even knew what that was what is the SR-71 Blackbird? oh it was the uh <laughs> supersonic stealth surveillance jet that I think one of them, uh, you know, the U.S. had for several years until one got spotted over Russia and then the, the game was up. But uh, what what he did that I thought was really great for a educational environment is most of our, it was one of those classes where you had three classes a week and they were maybe an hour 45 each. And only one of those class periods would be a lecture. It'd be one, one class a week would be a lecture. The other two classes were solving problems. So he would assign us our problem set. We'd have 10 or 15 problems. And these were all like real world engineering problems. And we would do them. And the class period would be he would just pick at random seven people. And you would go up on the board and you would do the problem on the board. And then explain how you broke through the problem and completed it to the class. Which became very, very tough for some people because you have to go and present something that you're you know, in class. You're not intimately familiar with, but learning through. But really that environment made it extremely challenging, but it pushed us to really learn and really understand the material to a point where you can talk about it. And that was our fluids class. But that type of thing, you know, and it, it was one of those where if you if you didn't do a good job, uh, he would call on you more frequently. And if you didn't do your homework, you got the the death stare and it was bad news. But um, even if you didn't figure out the answers, just explaining where you got stuck, where you got held up and how far you got or what assumptions you made to try to continue to move forward. If you did that, that was where he would, he would grade you based on your approach and not just getting, hitting a brick wall. And I think that one was, that was one that I really enjoyed because I'm just trying to push through and get through and and we learned a lot in our class. We all got really, really close because <laughs> uh, we would study and do our homework problems together. Yeah, you've talked a lot about that class. And I think, I mean, it definitely made such an impression on you. I think it would on anybody like, hey, do your homework. Oh, you didn't do your homework? Well, you have to get in front of the class and explain how you didn't do your homework and how you don't understand the problem anymore. Or if you did do it, show me where you got stuck. And I feel like that shows you like more than just, you know, your engineering skills. It's like, and your pro- like your problem solving also help with presenting too. I'd imagine there's just like a lot of life skills that he forced into. This yeah, class. I mean life skills for sure. Because then now every time I do a presentation, 
I break it down to like what are the questions and uh, you know that I might get, and you go into it you know prepared or I'm doing a problem, uh, an engineering uh, calculation or something. I'd look at okay, how am I going to be able to like present this or sell this idea? And I think that's really applicable in real world stuff because we're always trying to sell an idea right. um, and make it so just in engineering a lot of it's based off of math and numbers <laughs> right I want to break down really quickly what the ocean engineering program is because it's a pretty special program that FAU has and it's, it's really difficult so like what is the attrition rate or what was it when you were there do you remember I don't know. I heard something while I was there that like about 300 students, like as freshmen or sophomore, enroll in ocean engineering. And then when I graduated, we had a class of I think it was like 28 or just shy of 30, which was the biggest graduating class that the program had ever seen. I think it kind of hovers somewhere around that 20-ish or whatever. But yeah, even myself, I thought for a little while, I was like, well, math is hard. Maybe I'll switch to business, but uh, kind of a stubborn individual. So I said... (laughs) No, it's got some rains involved. I, I got to stick through. <laughs> you glad you did? Yeah, definitely. Good. So another really cool aspect of the ocean engineering program that I'm really grateful for is the senior design project. So this is kind of where, and I think it's really unique. Like, you know, I was a bio major and you just kind of like take classes, take classes, take classes, and then you graduate. And your senior design project was kind of like a thesis almost. It just takes everything that you've learned over the last you know, four or five years, however long the program takes, and distills it down into like, now you have to create something. So can you go just overview of like what that, what process was like and your project? Maybe what were some of the other projects too? The senior design, as they called it, was uh, really something that was pretty special because it required all of us to, our class broke into three different groups, I think it was. There was about eight to ten in each group. And we got assigned a kind of very general task. And we had to come up with how we were going to solve it, present it, and then we were actually funded for it. So there was some little bit of, you know, it really taught you to present. So our my project was we had to do some kind of a nearshore reconnaissance vessel, autonomous vessel. Um, the thought was something special forces can deploy and, and launch, and it would record and feed back. So really one of those, like, glamorous, like, oh, sweet, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. So we had that, and we were funded, um, I think it was like 17000 bucks is what we got to just piece together the pieces. And we had to handle the financials, the purchasing, the planning, the construction, and everything of it. Um, so we built a six foot long by four foot wide catamaran hull autonomous surface vessel from paper to uh, product at the end and didn't have it working totally to our ultimate at the end, but we we're pretty dang close. So we had it to where, uh, you know, it would go it had batteries, it had camera, it would feed back to a base station. So you'd watch what the, what the vehicle's doing and we would pre-program courses. So we made the hulls out of, that's one of the things I helped with was the hull design. Just took a well-known hull design so we could easily figure the power requirements. And uh, I made it out of foam, fiberglassed it, built a aluminum structure, had it anodized, a control box, wired the circuitry and did all that together, which is really cool. And you get to learn all the aspects of it. And then some of the other projects were, I think one of the groups had to do uh, like a subsea monitoring station. So they built this, I think it was aluminum frame with a small pressure vessel and a camera. And then one of them actually had a winch so it could take kind of like CTD measurements in reverse. So you would moor this thing in the bottom 
and every couple of hours it would release this float buoy that would that had a sensor on it and it would take measurements at different uh, water elevations. And CTD for listeners is yeah. conductivity, temperature, and depth. So it's just kind of um, like a quick snapshot of what the water is in these in these different depths. Yeah, and I can't recall off the top of my head what the other part okay. was. Okay, so a reverse CTD and a SWE autonomous vehicle. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there a buoy, or was that the CTD that I was thinking? We had a lot of ocean energy projects going on at the same time. That as a senior, you try to uh, try to help out when you can. Mm-hmm. So I know they had that going on that some people might have been working on. It might have been something with uh, related to ocean energy in the Gulf Stream and a an offshore buoy system. Okay. So really cool, amazing projects that these college seniors are coming up with just in their undergrad. So I think that's like a really special thing with the ocean engineering program is that it just like forces you to use all of these skills that you've taken class and class and class and built all this repertoire of knowledge. And then you get to apply it, which is really cool. So you end your senior year and you actually get a job offer. And it's, I just, I love telling this because you have a degree in ocean engineering and then you got a job with a company called... Oceaneering. Which <laughs> <laughs> is so perfect. And it's extra cool because Oceaneering had the submersibles that found the Titanic, right? That's what that was the company that Bob Ballard used, or was that later? No, that was I think later they've used some ROVs. I mean he had I'm not sure who well Oceaneering didn't build Alvin, which I think was the first vehicle that they used to find it. But they did end up adopting the spider bot. I think they bought the technology and use it the uh, where the the Hollywood movie used to film a lot of that, but the spider bot was the uh, ROV that spooled out its own umbilical, so it could fish its way through a wreck and explore without having to trace its way back through. So it would feed out its own umbilical and then exit, and then it could they could snip it and return, so you don't lose a very expensive <laughs> underwater robot. Wait. Wait, explain how that would work. So the ROV goes down to, into a ship and like it's all this maze and stuff. So and, and it's still attached to the ship communicating, right? Mm-hmm. So after it gets this, you call it an umbilical. And this is all the electrical cables and stuff that are attaching it to the ship and communicating. So if it once it gets down in, it can pop out somewhere else and all this cable is still wound through the ship and mm-hmm. it can cut it. And then how does it find its way back to the ship if it's no longer attached to the umbilical? Oh, so they had that with the, the small one that they call the spider bot was uh, you know, launched from a submersible. Oh, so okay. it would come to and from. Them. So a traditional ROV is usually uh, ship-based and they require a lot of power. So they have their own power supply that comes from the ship and that's their umbilical. So it's got all the command and control cables and power conductors to power the vehicle. That's why a lot of them are actually square because they use so much power in general that hydrodynamics of it, you don't need to make them hydrodynamic. But the little one that they used for that was launched from the submersible. So the submersible powered it. And well, it had its own internal batteries, I think as well, because then it would wind its way through, exit, and then it could find a short, it could power itself on a short distance to get back to the submersible. And then you would reconnect a new umbilical later because that was less expensive than the than the robot itself. Okay. So the, could the umbilical cord just retract back to the submarine or is it just lost into no, the abyss think, of the ocean? Yeah, some of the time they can recover some of it. I'm not, okay. I'm not, unfortunately, I didn't get to join on, on any of those expeditions. <laughs> that would have been sweet. <laughs> 
he did have some really cool experience. So Oceaneering does ROVs, and they were the one that helped, like, Edie Witter, we've had on the podcast. She was That was the company that had the wasp suit, which you got to see, right? Yeah, we had one in the, in the lobby of our building, so that was pretty awesome. Yeah. So what was it like working with an ocean engineering degree for a company called Oceaneering? What was your roles and responsibilities? So I started as a... Uh, just a mechanical engineer, because a lot of ocean engineering is actually you know mechanical based as well. Mechanical meaning oh. like <laughs> engines. Yeah, well, uh, and moving parts. Moving parts, hinges, mechanisms, you know, kind of combining system, mechanical systems, we would call it. But uh, so that was the the first job, and it was actually working with the submarine rescue program. So we had a, a large vehicle that, in case the submarine went down, could go and recover the crew members from a submarine. Why is this important? I mean, like, it boggles the mind that this wasn't in existence until recently. But... Well, they, there's been various systems in place since predating World War II. And obviously, you know, anyone, when they were designing subs, they knew they had to, you know, try to find some way to recover because one of the worst ways to go is probably to be stuck on the bottom. So that's been a pretty important priority is to be able to recover people. Mm-hmm. And it's a much more challenging thing than people realize. I mean, maybe they do realize it is pretty pretty tough to try to get down to the bottom and recover. Uh, you know, especially nowadays, modern nuclear submarines have crews of you know, 90 to, to almost 200 or 180 people. So to be able to get them all the way back up to the surface in who knows what depth of water. So we had uh, that system, and it had been around for a while. There's been several variations, but this was supposed to be the most modernized, fully capable system. And it, had a, it was like an ROV that would go down and pick up up to 18 people and could bring 18 people at a time. And then it was trying to also solve the problem of if a pressure hull got breached and water flooded some of the compartments and the submarine had lost power and was unable to regulate its own pressure because submarines are generally kept at one atmosphere then all of a sudden the crew members become what's known as saturated mm-hmm. which if you're you know diving and as in scuba diving too long you get more nitrogen in your blood you could get the bends it's kind of the same thing as if they were diving and they're breathing compressed air or compressed gas for mm-hmm. a longer period of time so they can't just open the hatch and say here i am so they had a system it was kind of like a just large sat diving system saturated diving system that could unload the passengers from the rescue submersible and then decompress them so that they couldn't pop the hatch and come you know come back to daylight okay so i kind of want to break that down a little bit so submarines typically keep people their passengers at one atmosphere which is what we're at right now right like we're breathing air on land one atmosphere then you go down for anybody that dives you know this already, you go down to 33 feet, now you're at two atmospheres, right? Mm -hmm. So 66, three atmospheres, so on and so forth. So if you imagine a submarine down in the bottom of the ocean, they're probably in a little bit more than 66 or 100 feet of water. And even at that, if you stay for even more than like 40 minutes, you're like pretty saturated and you need to do what's called a deco stop or a decompression stop to just try to like get as much nitrogen out of your system as possible and to come up very slowly. And if you're in a submarine that's sunk on the bottom, coming up slowly isn't really an option. You gotta have yeah, to- Yeah, you wanna get out of there as fast as you can. <laughs> right. And if you're in like a thousand feet of water, you're not gonna be able to just like kick out with a dive tank on your back, even if there were enough dive tanks. So this is where the submarine rescue system comes into place. And so if the, if the submarine was lost pressure, you were saying, it would be at some sort of 
more than one atmosphere pressure. Mm -hmm. And this vehicle would come down and attach and be at that same pressure that the submarine was at and bring these people back to the surface. Now, did it bring them back to the surface and keep them at that pressure and then put them on the ship at that pressure where they could do a hyperbaric chamber? Yep. Okay. That's what, that was my understanding. Yeah. I mean, there's various scenarios, but uh, in general, yeah. Okay. So the idea is to like, for this, this cool vehicle that Nick helped work on to be able to hold the pressure that the submarine's at, keep these people at the pressure, get them on the ship and then go back down for more. Cause you said there was like a hundred sometimes 200 people on these boats. And if it only submarines and if they could only hold 18 people in the rescue vehicle, and you'd be going back and forth a few times. Multiple trips, yeah. Cool. It's a really cool project. I always yeah. thought it was super cool. What were some of the things that you got to do as part of this? Like you you were working, I mean, you worked in an office quite a bit, but you did some traveling with it. Yeah, so we got to, I was kind of involved in a, a neat part of it. And the project had been going on for, you know, a long time, but... Was, a long time meaning like 20 years. Yeah, so it was like... Yeah, 20 years from like thought to, to build and they spent a lot of time with the building the vehicle and all that was pretty much done when I started to get involved. But we were building the hyperbaric chamber, the, you know, the hyperbaric components of the submarine rescue system. So we got to obviously, you know, learn a bit about pressure vessels and building them and the fabrication and the quality needs and quality assurance processes of that. So I got to travel around a bit when we actually did the building and testing of subcomponents. And then actually one thing that was kind of neat that I was involved with was the flexible connections between. So as the ship is out on the ocean in say, you never know where a submarine is. It could be in 10 foot seas needing for a rescue. That ship actually bends and moves and deflects. And the submarine rescue uh, with a hyperbaric chamber, something under pressure, it doesn't like to be bent. So we had flexible joints built into the system so that the hyperbaric chambers on the port side of the ship and the starboard side of the ship could all be still hooked up. The left and right side of the ship. You know, and under pressure. So that was a pretty neat. We had, a, in essence, a large rubber expansion joint, similar to what's used in you know, large pipe networks and things like that, but very specially, uh, very specially built and tested um, to prove, and I was involved with the build of those. That was cool. I was out in Lodi, California. Yeah. you. I mean, you got to go Lodi, California. You went to mm -hmm. San Diego. You got to go to the UK several times. So there was lots of traveling involved. It wasn't just like... Yeah, it was, it was based out... The system was based out of San Diego, which was actually really cool, uh, you know, life moment where uh, I think it's called Undersea Rescue Center now, but it used to be Deep Submergence Unit or DSU, which housed the DRSVs that were shown in the movie Hunt for Red October, which was one of my favorites uh, growing up. So I actually got to see and touch one of those, which is a, a life accomplishment of mine I'll never forget. <laughs> and that was in San Diego, which is beautiful because it's out at the end of the runway and the weather out there is awesome. Yes. And at this time, we were living in Annapolis, Maryland. So we had, Nick had graduated in oceaneering, um, well, I guess not their headquarters, but this main office was in... Hanover, Maryland, and so Nick ended up moving to Annapolis, Maryland, and that's where we were kind of based out of, and this is where he was traveling from and where his office work was. And then we decided to come back to Florida because <laughs> because of me. Listeners, you may not know this. I know I've said it a few times on the show, but uh, Cold and I, I'll visit it. I like to visit it. 
I don't, I like living in the warm. So we live in Florida and Nick is such a wonderful sport about it because we get to dive and fish and do all that. Yeah, so we do, you know, that type of stuff, which is a lot of enjoyment. So it's like in the summertime, we just uh, play like hippo mode, try to spend as much time in the water as possible. It's like a hippo. So we come back to Florida and you get a job with, well, after a gap, you get a job with Martin County and I think your job is super cool. Martin County is the county that we live in, and Nick's job encompasses a lot, but one of the coolest parts, I think, is that he deals a lot with stormwater. So why is stormwater, what is stormwater, and why is it important here? Yeah, so I uh, you know, ultimately got a job with our Martin County Public Works Department, and definitely took a switch, but uh, you know, living local is pretty nice and not having to travel. So I work with our stormwater portion of our field operations. So in essence, the title now is infrastructure maintenance manager. I oversee our stormwater uh, maintenance and construction program. So stormwater, which is neat because I, you know, now a little bit more in the water quality science side uh, and then, you know, infrastructure construction associated with that. So stormwater is important, you know, especially in our area where water quality is a big thing. So in a saltwater environment, Stormwater runoff carries nutrients and urban contamination into the waterways. So locally, we've had issues related to uh, Lake Okeechobee and local urban runoff. So it's kind of neat that I get the direct impact and I can be involved in our local component of water quality. So we have several maintenance programs that I oversee that help us to collect debris, maintain our stormwater treatment areas, and improve water quality, which gives me enjoyment. <laughs> yes. And we live right on the coast, so Nick's job, like, keeping stormwater clean and or completely out of our water bodies directly impacts the ocean, which is really awesome that he gets to play such, like, a strong, vital role in that. So there's a few programs that Martin County has, and one of them is cool that like not many locals even know about is the baffle boxes. So could you explain what a baffle box is and what you do with the baffle box program? Yeah, so uh, a baffle box is a type of catch basin. Or if you're just driving down the street, you see that metal grate, rusty looking metal grate that all the water flows into. Below that is a, a box structure called a catch basin. And that's where the water flows into that and then into the pipe network. And then routes its way to eventually to an outfall um, or another lake of sorts. So a baffle box is a structure, just like that. It's literally a box, but it's got a series of baffles in it, which is just a concrete wall that either comes up from the bottom of the box or down from the top of the box. And they're structured to catch either floating debris or settling debris. So they do a really good job of catching debris. And then we have a vac truck, which is a big truck with a 10 cubic yard or 12 cubic yard container in the back and a heavy and a giant vacuum. And it sucks all that stuff up. So one of the things is as that sediment gets into the pipes, it can block things, cause flooding, and also nutrients from that sediment and leave debris, organic matter. Uh, as water flushes through there, that reaches, you know, leaches into the water through osmosis and can enter the water body. So one of the ways that we keep nutrients down is by removing sediment from the roadways through street sweeping, and then also from the pipe network through using our vac truck through those baffle boxes. So there's those types of baffle boxes, and then there's also ones that have filters built into them and screens to catch other debris and to keep it out of the water. So there's uh, there's a series of iterations as Florida's stormwater is a 
pretty big thing. And there's a Florida Stormwater Association that I'm a member of that you know, does a lot of education and promotes advancements in uh, you know, trying to do things smarter with runoff. Because here in Florida, we get a lot of rain and sometimes it comes down really, really heavy at times. Mm-hmm. So controlling that is uh, is pretty important. And those are some of the tools that we use to to do that. Yeah. How much rain do we get every year? Ish. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rain's it, a little bit of a touchy subject for me. <laughs> yeah. So the the twenty year running average is about fifty five to sixty inches a year. But we have times like last year we got upwards of one hundred and twenty or more inches, which is pretty much more rain than about anywhere in the United States gets, except for some portions of Hawaii and then very remote areas of the Northwest. Like Seattle gets like, think everyone thinks of rain and they get like 35 inches a year. So we got 30 inches in one 10 day period uh, last year. Last year. So <laughs> we had a very rainy year last year. And I imagine there's stormwater concerns throughout the country, but Florida particularly has it because Florida is a swamp and we kind of move the water around in order to build on Florida, which has its own set of challenges and problems. Um, and the result of that is the water has to go somewhere. So if it just, if we displaced it, so it would just go straight into our water bodies, or we can do these programs that kind of like help clean it and redirect it or hold it, which is more of what it naturally did, which kind of brings me nicely to the stormwater treatment areas. Could you explain what an STA is, a stormwater treatment area is, and kind of how they're employed in Martin County. Yeah, so a a stormwater treatment area, or STA as they're referred to, is an artificial lake. And the point of it is to hold water so that it can clean itself. Um, Generally, water will, like I just said, clean itself through uh, biological and chemical processes. So the you know algaes and the nutrients and the small organisms that live on the plants that surround that like if you're looking thinking about a wetland environment all those organisms consume the nutrients in the water as well as nutrients will settle out over time and total suspended solids will settle over time and that's the purpose of the lakes are to the stormwater treatment areas are to catch and treat that water and allow it to um, to clean up before being discharged downstream so some of these are you know they they look as if they were natural lakes, but they were, uh, you know, all man-made, dug and planted to to look like a beautiful lake. And a lot of them are, you know, really park-like features that, mm-hmm. uh, but you wouldn't even know it's really serving an additional purpose. Yeah, they really are beautiful. We we have several. Do you know how many we have in Martin County? Probably two dozen or so. I mean, there's various sizes from little ones to big ones. Okay, so we have several in Martin County, and we've like gone and had family picnics at one of them. So they're really cool features. And some other ways that Martin County controls the stormwater, not just STAs, but also through ditches and swales and just different ways to kind of re- redirect the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're actually kind of... Something neat that I'm, we're just kind of starting to talk about now uh, is how we can utilize those existing unsightly ditches and conveyance measures for improving water quality. So generally you try not to plant them up totally because that'll restrict the flow of water, but there are certain things you can do that won't have that much impact on the flow or peak flow, but it'll provide an impact for treating your base flow. And actually one of the projects that I'm like 
really happy about. It's been something that I was pushing for is we've been doing American eelgrass plantings in some of the SDAs and some of the some of the ditches with the thought that that'll help stabilize the bottom, reduce transport of suspended solids and the bottom as a whole of the ditch that carries nutrients to prevent that transport through there. So we've got a couple of projects where we've been planting American eelgrass in, and that you know also promotes you know, small snails and clams and the birds and the turtles and kind of creates more of a holistic approach to an engineering need of cleaning the water and stabilizing ditches and stormwater features. Yeah, it's very cool. I'm curious to see the results of this because you just had the eelgrass planted like this year, last year. We did two years ago and then we had a lot of rain so the survivability was pretty poor. Um, so we did a, an additional planting as well. So we've had, uh, it's definitely been starting to succeed where it's been established. We've got one, I got to go check it out again, but a couple months back, it turned from just, you know, small little plugs into uh, one was like a 12 foot by six foot thick mat of eelgrass because the other benefit to that, trying to look at natural solutions because there are natural solutions out there, is the eelgrass can actually outcompete some of the other invasive vegetation mm. that really becomes a nuisance so there's um one uh, hydrilla and what's the other name we call it water cabbage water. yeah water um, yeah it can create long strands and lump up and then break free in huge clumps that clog up drainage infrastructure but american eelgrass can out compete that and then when it breaks off it breaks off in either small little aerial roots that it uses to propagate or just the leaves break off and it doesn't create this downstream impact that you know is bad for flood control and generally people have seen vegetation in stormwater features is bad for flood control so we're trying to evaluate that and break that thought by trying to pilot project with this american eelgrass to stabilize the ditch banks and outcompete some of these other vegetation that generally is treated with either mechanically removing it which is very expensive or chemicals which not you know, great aren't, for the environment. aren't good so we try to not do that right we've touched a little bit about water lettuce on the show about like it can choke out ditches and like you mentioned cause issues clogging these flowways which is important like you said it's very expensive to mechanically remove which martin county mostly does mechanical removal right mm-hmm. but the state maybe doesn't have the infrastructure or the personnel or the money or whatever it is so predominantly a lot of it gets sprayed and it's not great not the not the best way to combat it. So I like this idea of like eelgrass. It's a natural grass that grows here and it can now compete this invasive nuisance species and help our water quality. Mm-hmm. It's a very cool thing. So we talked about STAs. We talked about the baffle boxes. What's like one other aspect of, the, of your job that you like that kind of surprised you before moving into it? I mean, something that was interesting that I never would have expected is just the sheer volume of different things that a public works department would do. Like Mm. I I took it for granted totally until I got involved in the stormwater aspect. And now I, I see a bigger picture about all the small things that make up public service in an urban area between utilities, landscape maintenance, roadways, stormwater, and all that. And that was a a pretty big surprise to me, but it's kind of cool because I can, actually have a direct impact on our stormwater and water quality by helping and directing maintenance of our stormwater assets. Very cool. I think your job is super cool and important. (laughs) One of my new favorite questions to ask, if you had an unlimited amount of money for a project, 
any project. Could be with Martin County, could be your own fun thing. What would you use it? Oh man. <laughs> I've heard you ask that one before. <laughs> I like artificial reefs and the thought of, especially on this coast of Florida, where you look at how being able to stabilize the beach and prevent erosion and the, the benefits that a an energy break offshore from the beach can provide, build in some sort of like neat, survivable breakwater that doubles as an artificial reef and habitat, something like that. I'd probably, I'd, I'd just go haywire and <laughs> do something like that. So artificial reef being, I mean, there's so many different things that could be an artificial reef. Like they could be a sunken boat, right? Like that's been cleaned out or like an actual reef ball, like big concrete ball, or it could be like a actual structure that we like grow coral on, right? And like that's a more of like a living artificial reef instead of just plopping these reef balls or boats out there and waiting for the natural recruitment to happen. Do you have thoughts of which you would prefer? I mean, it would be integrated with a lot of that, but you know, in essence, we've got a lot of wave energies, especially here because we're just north of the Bahamas. Right. So building something that actually does block the wave energy. So we've got St. Lucie Inlet Reef State Park, which is the northern extent of the southeast Florida coral reef tract. And then even moving forward, when we go diving and looking north as well, there's a lot of hard bottom. And some of that is covered with sand to various extent, but it's it's large. I guess maybe like just sheets of rock, mm-hmm. worm rock, limestone, it's, just, it's huge rocks. And obviously building something, if you're going to attempt to stop the wave energy, it's got to be large. Mm-hmm. So some little like net for growing coral, I would probably have something like that as well. So once the, uh, you know, the reef gets established, then uh, populated with that because that's you know, something I've always been interested in. Yeah. So we go out snorkeling and do uh, Florida Department of Environmental Protection has a bleach watch program so you can survey coral and take photos and identify what you see, where you see, and if you're seeing bleaching and then report it to them. We've taken that training like twice and done that and that's a lot of fun and counting fish on a reef too. It would solve an engineering problem with a natural solution. I think that's neat. That's something I always try to strive for. I like that. I like that a lot. I want to do a quick oceanography lesson because we talked about like breakwater and like that we're north of Bahamas and like why would that even matter, right? Good point. If you look at Florida and you look just to the east, there is a lovely island chain that is the Bahamas, except where we are and and then further the rest of the state, there isn't any more island chain. And so what happens is the wind and currents can build these waves. And the longer they have without an interruption, like an island chain, the bigger the fetch. This is like getting into your territory. Yeah, so we get more wave energy. So with waves, if anyone into surfing, you get the longer wavelength waves or your wave period. Generally, the longer the wave period, the more energy it carries because that means it's been traveling a longer distance. So when we have with your near an island chain or surrounded by land farther like not too far off the coast you're not going to get those long period waves because it's being blocked or blocked by some landmass. so south of florida you get the bahamas that block it and other features but on the north portion we get occasionally you know and then up the rest of the way on the east coast they'll get more wave action because the waves can actually travel the whole distance of the ocean or long portions of it and build energy and you have constructive wave interference. So a wave will build on a wave, will build on a wave, and then you get more more energy. So we have actually on our end a decent bit of B 
beach erosion and I mean a barrier island so it's constantly changing but with renourishment um, I know they do a lot of monitoring of the current hard bottom but that's why because of wave energy that's more important here so areas that like Hawaii, they get big wave periods because they're surrounded by ocean. You get long period, long fetch where the wind can blow the water, creates the waves, and those waves can build on top of other waves. Right. And you get your long period. Yep. That makes sense. All right. So we want to break up the waves so that not all this energy is coming and pounding on our shores and eroding our beaches and causing all sorts of other issues. So Nick, this is what Nick wants to do is kind like of play. A neat science project. Yeah. Yeah. Neat, fun science project using natural solutions for engineering problems. Yep. I like it. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this can be favorite day out in the water, or it could be a day where like things happen and it makes a really great story now. All right. So I think I got two. One was that I think is, you know, really good for, you know, anyone in, in school or anything like that. But, uh, we did right where I went to school at Florida Atlantic University. There was a like a Navy kind of research lab, but did more on the ocean science aspect, right at located right at Port Everglades. And we did a tour of that as part of school. And they were like, had offered up, hey, if anyone wants to come out on a research vessel to see what we do for a day, let us know. I ended up being, I think, the only one in my class to actually contact the guys and be like, yes, let me, can I go? So they had a day they were picking up some equipment out in the Gulf Stream and offshore. And I had talked to my professors and they were like, yeah, absolutely. Get, get experience. Do it. So I got to skip class for a whole day to go out on the ocean to play, uh, you know, engineer with a, on a 65 foot offshore vessel picking up uh, instruments out in the Gulf Stream. We go out there early in the morning. It's a little bit windy, but I'm just following the lead of everybody else. And we get out there and it ends up being really windy out of the north. So we go south all the way to the bottom of the string of equipment, like 10 miles south of Port Everglades. And it's too rough to haul everything onto the deck because it's building. It's like six to eight footers at this time at like nine in the morning or so. And it only gets windier throughout the day. So it's too rough to be able to lift equipment up onto the deck with the cranes. Just dangerous. The deck boss says, you know, abort mission, we're, we're done. Now we have to head north back to Port Everglades. Well, the wind is heavy out of the north. The current runs from the south to the north, the Gulf Stream, at typically like three to four knots. And we've got to go 10 miles into the wind that's lifting up all the water uh, and creating really bad waves. So it ended up being like 12-foot waves and the point where we have this like three-story, 65-foot research boat with cranes on the back and I'm in the wheelhouse sitting talking with the captain. And it's like deadliest catch. He's got his windshield wipers going and the waves are just hitting this thing. And I was like, oh my God, this is just like I see on TV. And people were vomiting out the side. It was like nuts for about an hour and a half before we got back. And luckily, I knock on wood, didn't get sick. But that was one time where I was... Uh, <laughs> definitely fighting it but it just felt like deadliest catch and i thought took that as an opportunity i just reached out to him was like yeah can i go and told my professors that day i was like hey can i miss class i've got this opportunity they're like yeah absolutely go learn what you can learn get some experience and that was a good opportunity probably the other story was like a, a feel-good opportunity so as i grew up always watching shark week and stuff like that mm. fascinated watched all these like south pacific ones with white tip reef sharks they always look so docile and nice and mm -hmm. they've got a cool looking face and always wanted to see one it was like one of those that you know just wanted to see i don't know why those like 
Blue Sharks and Sand Tigers are probably the other two that I haven't seen yet. But in between Maryland and Florida, we took some time and went traveling and ended up doing a marine conservation program in a remote northeast portion of Madagascar called Nosy B was the island. And there was a marine preserve there called Tanakeli Marine Preserve. Mm -hmm. And this was awesome. The reefs were really good. It was protected by two things. One, there was it was a marine park, so there was it was protected by uh, the law, law or protected by the law and regulation. But really, that that didn't matter that much in that area. But what it really was, it was separated like six to eight miles mm-hmm. from the nearest land body. Mm-hmm. So there, most of the fishermen all are on canoes with rice bag sails. So it provided right. a kind of a natural boundary as well, which. Huge fish. It was just it was just spectacular. But we were swimming one day, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden see this like three three and a half foot shark cruising along the bottom. Signature white dorsal fin was just like oh my god, it's a white tip reef shark. <laughs> and we followed it around. It was just a, one of those pretty awesome moments. It was. And I followed it and got you know video, but obviously kept my distance and just kind of tracked it as it patrolled in and out of the crevices on the reef. Yeah. And we also saw a uh, a leopard shark there too. Yeah, it was, was a really special spot. Yeah, that place was man, it was awesome. Very cool. Great field stories. At the end of each episode, I'd like to leave the audience with a conservation asked to, to go forth and take into the world into their lives. What would you like my audience to take away from your episode? I'd probably say I was thinking about this. You know, one thing that I think I've tried to do that I think everyone can. All you got to do is like look, is try to find ways to either be smarter, helping the planet, reducing waste, doing things environmentally friendly in your everyday field, even if it's not something that's related to environmental science. Like if you're in journalism, maybe write some more about the ocean or trying to communicate that. If you're in uh, construction, you know, finding ways that you can reduce waste or, you know, control runoff and you know manage that. If you're in property management, how can your property be more environmentally friendly, pay attention to your green infrastructure, what you're doing with runoff? I just try to factor... And spraying. I want to say that for property uh, management because I see so many of these big homes on the water that spray. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah what you know goes on in those those little things that you know, seem like they're part of everyday practice just because we've been doing them for a long time. But evaluate and think about ways that, you know, you might be able to actually save money and make things better by by changing how we do things by either consuming less or uh, producing less waste. Great ask. I love it. Thanks. (laughs) Well, thank you for being on the show today, love. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree.
Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.